You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. John, welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Mm, Did you have a nice Christmas? I told you at the very beginning of this, I told you not to ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) Me and my family are single-handedly responsible for NHS waiting lists at the moment, (laughs) as listeners can probably hear in my voice. In fact, let's just start right in on NHS. No, no, let's not park it. Let's go straight (laughs) in there on the NHS. Now, we are talking just after Rishi Sunak came out with his um, five promises, or as we shall call them in the future, five vague and pointless promises, in which he told us that he would promise to do some of the things that I think personally, as a voter and taxpayer, I kind of assumed he was going to do anyway. Yes, the sort of thing you kind of would take for granted it's like coming back and saying, I think, I think I, my aim is to have a functional society again. I mean, I think, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's not real. You're not kind of setting the bar very high, Rishi. Mm. You're really Especially not. Whenever, was it the, the tax take is approaching 40% of the GDP now? It's, I think, under the current forecast, it heads up to nearly 39%, which I'm not sure it'll ever reach. I mean, we've talked about this before, John, but we've mm. looked at the percentage of GDP that each country can peek out at as a tax take, right? And the UK very rarely gets the 40%. We don't like it. We won't pay that much as a society. So as we start hitting 40%, we start fiddling around with our taxes. We start working less. We start, um, you know, shifting shifting our income around the place. And you begin to see the tax takes sort of peak out in the high 30s. And other countries will go higher. You know, the Scandinavian countries, they're like, yeah, okay, we'll pay over 40%. And some of the other European countries will do it. But in the UK, it's almost impossible to get the tax take up to the high 30s and keep it there, let alone 40%, because we change our behavior. I mean, it's just the way they are. You can want it to be different. I know a lot of people want it to be different, but you can't make it different. Now, speaking of things you want to be different but can't make different, let's go back to Rishi Sunak and his rather vague and pointless inflation promise. He would like to promise us that he's going to bring inflation down from, oh, I don't know, 10, 11% to, to what, what do you think he's after here? 4, 5%, something like that. Now, that's the absolute <laughs> minimum, minimum you could expect for the kind of thing a prime minister would want to do in a country like the UK, right? But can he do it? Has it got anything to do with him at all? No, I mean, it's probably his easiest promise to keep because either it's going to happen or it's not. And mathematically, it probably will go down to... I mean, even the kind of bearish forecasters writing 6% is the low next year. And lots of people are saying much lower than that. So you'll probably hit it. But yeah, it's got nothing to do with him. It's barely getting to do with the Bank of England. Yeah, so as a promise, this is the same as Rishi Sunak standing up and saying, I promise you that I will make sure the spring arrives. <laughs> the green shoots. <laughs> 
Okay, and it's got nothing to do with the Bank of England either. We've discussed this before. They have ideas of their powers that don't really exist. They can raise interest rates as much as they like, but if the oil price went to $200, it wouldn't make any difference. Not that it's going to. Well, no, probably not. Not this year. Is that another one of your forecasts, John? No, 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 no. I'm not getting tricked into that again. That's it. I've still got to milk the 30% house price one for all it's worth. There you go. Proof, listeners. John learns. I can trick him once. I can't trick him twice. <laughs> uh, right. I have got our guest coming up and later in the podcast. We do talk about house prices and Anna McDonald fairly sort of speaks as though it's entirely reasonable to expect house prices to fall 20, 30% over the next year and for the banks to be ready for that and prepared for that. So, you know, it's no longer an out there idea, John, that house prices will fall 30% in nominal terms. So you might have to up that for cost or down that forecast depends how you look at it you want to go 50 it's not good as it is kind of like you know i come out with this and suddenly everyone's copying me i don't want to go higher or lower i just want to like point out that yeah you know 20 percent nominal terms just takes us back to pandemic early pandemic but also i was just i was fact i was rereading that paper from uh the ex-bank england uh chap um, from 2019 where he talks about how real yields are the important factor and there's actually a line in there where he says that if real yields go from negative 2% which is where they were in 2019 up to 0% then house prices would fall by about 31% based on their model now real yields have now gone to 0% and it looks like they're just going to stay there um, I mean I did talk to David Miles briefly and he didn't go that far this time round but it's interesting just to know that so uh, yeah it's, it's, it's quite a I think even if the UK economy does better than lots of people expect this year and I actually think it will um, the, the kind of wee burst of trading updates we've had so far make it look as if actually consumers actually kept spending at Christmas um, which makes sense because everyone still get jobs etc etc but even we're looking at a, a wholesale repricing of asset markets so the expensive assets have got to come down because interest rates have gone up. It's, it's that straightforward. And UK property falls into the category of expensive assets. Thankfully, as I think you probably talk about with Anna, uh, UK shares don't fall into that category. They're actually kind of cheap assets at the moment. So the interest rate thing shouldn't actually cause them any major problems. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I agree with you that the UK economy will probably do better than most people expect this year, but that's largely because everyone expects it to do so incredibly badly. And uh, the retail numbers, etc., really haven't been that bad. And I don't see the major issues with consumer confidence yet. But one of the things that you and I have written about over the years and over and over and over is about how GDP growth or decline is in no way correlated with asset market returns. Asset market returns are correlated to interest rates and they're correlated to the prices at which they begin every year, right? So the fact that the UK economy, let's say it does do appallingly this year, let's say we say horrible performance from the UK economy, it does not follow in any way that UK asset prices would do badly as a result. I'm separating out house prices here because unemployment goes, unemployment goes to 10%. Well, of course, house prices will fall further than you'd expect. But equities, etc., are not correlated to the performance of the UK economy. They're correlated to price. And if they're already cheap, then how the economy performs from here is almost by the by, right? Yeah, and also, yeah, there's a lot of space for sentiment to change still, just on the UK generally. We're still the hardest hit when it comes to um, outflows from funds 
for example. Um, and if you look at the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Index, every month the UK is down there as the most hated market. So I, you know, I, I just think that it's one of those contrarian trades that still has a massive amount of room to turn out well. And that's that's despite the fact that the FTSE 100 was basically the best uh, performing developed market last year. Well, this could be this could be our year. Then you know the money always goes to things that are going up, not things that are going down. So maybe they'll suddenly appear in the UK this year. Anyway, John, it is good good to be back. Good to have you back. And see, um, now I don't know how to finish this summer because I can't remember what happened next. Hello and welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. With me this week, our guest is Anna McDonald, fund manager at Amati Global, specializing in UK equities and in particular in smaller companies. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Anna... Tell me a little bit about last year. I mean, obviously, that was a, a tough year for everybody working in the markets. Well, not everybody. I mean, I guess if you held nothing but uh, oil, gas and value stocks, you probably did OK last year. But the majority of people going into 2022 did not have that kind of portfolio. How, how did it work out for you? Look, there's not much more that I can say to add to that, apart from, I think, in the UK, as you say, with energy stocks and some value names, um, which composed most of the FTSE 100, which meant that it had a very small positive outturn. It's been a really pretty miserable year. We've had the AIM All Share fell by 30%. Um, We've got the FTSE 250 down by 18%. So it's not been a fun time being a, a small cap investor. In fact, I think UK smaller companies were the one of the worst performing global asset classes. Um, so that has been pretty miserable. I think really it's because the markets are still reeling from what the effects of the pandemic were um, and that massive fiscal response to it, which now when we look back on it, looks a bit crazy. The central banks printing money at a crazy rate. And those really loose monetary conditions meant that asset prices drove up really sharply. And and now we're seeing the effects of inflation and interest rates. And that really hits the small and mid-cap indices pretty hard. Yeah, an awful lot of what happened during the pandemic is beginning to look increasingly crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Not just the money printing and the fiscal stimulus. Yeah, the fiscal stimulus. I mean, I mean, I'm even thinking about it more broadly. I mean, what we see now, the problems in NHS, the huge learning gaps in education. I mean, some of it just looks like madness now when we look back on it. I suppose we have to try and remember how it felt at the time, which was pretty scary. And it felt like the right thing to do to protect lives at all costs and to, and to, do, to protect businesses at all costs. But we're now left in this sort of situation of a huge amounts of uncertainty all over the place. Um, so it's 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 not just difficult for investors. I think it's difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting though. I mean, when we talk about this kind of thing now, an awful lot of the conversation is about how could we possibly have known and how could anyone have foreseen what would happen if we X, Y and Z during the pandemic. But it's quite important to remember, actually, there were a lot of voices out there even two years ago saying, if you produce fiscal stimulus like this, if you print money like this, if you produce a vast amount of demand into a market in which supply is being crunched, you will create inflation. But central banks flatly refuse to believe that. They, you know, were 
utterly convinced it wouldn't happen. And, and then, of course, it did. I, it, when it comes to the economics and the, and the financial side of it, there were voices out there saying, hey, you know what? Print money, create demand, crunch supply. What is it you expect, people? No, I completely agree. And I think that actually central banks are now at the risk of probably overreacting to to um, what probably is soon to be peaking inflation um, because now they, they've sort of suddenly realised the, the mess that they've got themselves into. I think that um, that, that a lot of people in central banks just eschew monetarist theory and, and, have, um, and thought that they could get away with it. And I wonder if we hadn't had the um, zero COVID policy in, in China and if we hadn't had the uh, invasion of Ukraine, whether they, there might have been a chance of getting away with it, uh, or it might not have just been sort of compounded so badly, all these inflationary issues and supply chain problems and energy costs rising so much and food costs rising so much. So it's quite interesting to think about how perhaps that did just make everything an awful lot worse. If there is some kind of resolution in Ukraine, will that improve things? Who knows? Well, these would be the interesting possible surprises over the next year, wouldn't they? A resolution in Ukraine, a, um, you know, a, a COVID resolution. I don't even know what that means in China anymore. <laughs> one that one that didn't involve zero COVID and didn't involve, um, uh, you know, full medical breakdown in China, some middle way between that plus resolution in the Ukraine could completely change the global dynamic that we are expecting over the next 12 months. Whatever we think about the what must be a pretty hideous situation in China at the moment, they are going to get to herd immunity very quickly at this rate. So, I mean, I do think that has to be a shorter term issue. What I do think is a long term problem is that we've had such a deterioration in relations between the West and China. And we've had to really start thinking, I mean, from small companies like Brompton Cycles yesterday to big companies like Apple and Tesla, they're really having to think about how embedded they are in Chinese uh, supply chains and how dependent they are. And so that I think over the longer term is gonna have to be considered. And it's also probably going to be pretty inflationary, isn't it? If you're gonna have to start trying to rebuild supply chains in countries that you consider friends or nearby. Mm. But doesn't that feel to you like the big theme over the next, not just this year, but over the next five years, the really big theme being the, the reshoring or friendshoring of supply chains and a lot of what we might in the past have considered to be the incredibly productive activity that a good economy is based on. If that comes home, while well, I accept that in the short term it is inflationary and the long term possibly it's a, a very good thing. It is possibly a very good thing. I, th I think that we've realised there is a limit to specialisation. Whatever Adam Smith said, you know, we, we, we do have to have that whole shift from just in time and to just in case. We need to have more reliable sources. We can't trust particularly some of these autocratic regimes. They are not particularly going to act in a way that might suit our capitalist mentality. So if we're going to bring some of the, the most brilliant parts of the global economy home, it would seem to me that that is the kind of thing that would really benefit your kind of portfolio. I mean, you mainly invest in small caps in the UK, right, in which there's a lot of exciting things happening and a lot of the things that we might have been outsourcing the production, the manufacturing, and in a way some of the technology, we might have been outsourcing to China or to various other countries that aren't quite close enough for comfort. We bring that home. That's exciting news for some of the companies that you invest in, right? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we've got to caveat all this by saying it is simple to say, let's move things back on shore or close by. It's incredibly complicated to do. We, we're all aware now of those rising tensions we've got around um, Taiwan and the, the impact of what we might have, whether China invades or blockades Taiwan. It would make COVID and the war in Ukraine, I think, look like a small sideshow. What I think is interesting for the small companies that that we look at is I think the edge that we see in small caps is that we um, are looking for those management teams that often include the founders that have spotted a niche that they understand upside down and inside out. And they, they explore that niche perhaps first in the UK. And if they're successful, they can start to sell that overseas as well. We're looking at really very much uh, asset light businesses. You know, so it's the human capital and whether they can get the right talent on board and the right people on board. I think that's something that we have to really work hard at. I think that's, I mean, we all know that, but, you know, things like... We are pretty good on the life sciences. Video games tax relief has led to a huge amount of creativity in the UK, and it's a real hotbed of of that kind of talent. Um, So I think if we can continue to build on that, and also obviously we've got the big uh, financial sector in the UK that we we really need to cherish and look after. So I think if we can overcome some of the, the problems and getting hold of the right people and keeping the right people, I don't... You know, so far Brexit has not has been more of a hindrance than a help to that. So I think that um, we can hopefully see these smaller companies continue to gain that edge, exploit these niches, and we're really supportive of of management teams trying to do that. But to each one I speak to talks about the difficulty in finding the right talent. Does that not make you want to shift over away from investing in asset-like companies that uh, are very dependent on the right human capital into a different type of sector where perhaps you might be asset-heavy and um, the human capital isn't so important because the systems and structure is already in place? A bit more time and I don't know, the energy sector or something. We have always thought it's not just about looking for, for quality companies, it's about looking for diversification. Having a well-diversified portfolio has meant having exposure to stocks like energy, um, which did help us a lot in 2022. Arguably, we would have had higher weightings to those kind of companies and lower weightings to to more interest rate sensitive areas, which are also quite quite asset heavy, like house builders and, and property. So it's about thinking about lots of different dynamics, I suppose. It's not just about whether something's asset heavy or asset light. I think as an economy, we tend to be asset light, don't we? I mean, we are much more services oriented. And so we think the right kind of companies will continue to attract the right kind of talent. It's not been made easier by the last few years and what's happened in the UK economy. I want to come back to a few things that are a a bit UK specific in terms of the the huge outflows from the UK equity market and uh, the liquidity problems in the UK equity market that uh, you and I have discussed before and that I wrote about just before for Christmas based on uh, Simon French's work. But given that you mentioned house builders, can I just ask you about uh, the UK housing market? And if you have any particular view on that, I don't actually know if you're invested in any house builders or not, but possibly down the smaller end you are. But also, is there a challenge to the UK 
banking sector from a possible significant fall in UK house prices. The health of the housing sector does seem to have affected um, consumer confidence. I would say that we're in a very different situation than in 2008 in terms of how strong bank balance sheets are able to resist any kind of big drawdown in, in, in housing values. I think it's surprising to think that I think only about a third of houses do have mortgages outstanding on them. So we're perhaps not quite so vulnerable as we as we might have thought. And also we do have, I mean, I'm aware that fixed rate mortgages come to an end, but we do have a certain level of, of fixed rate mortgages, which is very different, for example, from what we saw in the late 80s, early 90s, where I think it was about 85% of mortgages were variable. Now that's the other way around. The most important thing to support mortgages is obviously high levels of employment. And we certainly do have high levels of employment at the moment, or, or low levels of unemployment, perhaps more accurate. We have a lot of people, I suppose, not in the workforce, but we do have um, low levels of unemployment. And that is very supportive actually Next talked about that in their trading update. For them, um, employment is the key indicator. You know, that is that is the health of their customer base. It means that their customer base can service their finance obligations and they're not seeing any need to change the provisions that they make in, the, in their finance business. There aren't many big banks that fall within our investment universe. We do have a speciality lender, a big position in a speciality lender. It's one of our top top weightings in, in OSB, which used to be known as One Savings Bank. They're already assuming a, a 50% chance of, of a 20 to 30% correction over the next year or two in, in house prices. But they feel that they're very well covered for that. They've got a good back book, which is cash generative, which is well covered. So I think that in the worst case scenario, they can even become a landlord in case they need to repossess properties. They're ready to do that. So I think you can find, whilst you might have broader risks of of housing correction, you can try and find nimble um, and interesting stocks that should actually uh, prevail during during a time of a house, house price correction and actually will hopefully come out the other side make, taking more market share. That's the kind of thing that we look for. Even, even if we're looking for a niche in a sector that isn't growing very much, hopefully if they've got a genuinely superior service or pricing or product, you know, even in times of difficulty, a good company should be able to gain market share and come out really strong. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Yeah, I'm slightly more nervous than you just on the basis that the majority of those fixed rate mortgages are two-year mortgages and, uh, you know, lots of them will be coming up for renewal relatively soon and they're going to find there's been a fairly stunning jump in, in their rate. If lenders have done their job, when you when you do your mortgage, you're meant to be able to survive, what is it, a 300 basis point increase in rates? Is that what they test you for? So we're probably testing the limits of that, given what we've seen in terms of interest rate rises over the last, the last year. I mean, I think it's probably worthwhile also remembering that a lot of this has been reflected in valuations. House builders have been absolutely awful over the last year. Persimmon down 57%, Barrett down 47% over the last year. Um, Housebuilders have been have been pretty pretty rubbish. So I think quite a lot of that might already be reflected in valuations. It's interesting, isn't it? This idea that I mean, I think you're right. A lot of it is reflected in valuations, but there is this sense that if something has fallen a lot, it becomes cheap. You hear people talking about the tech sector in the US at the moment, going, "Oh, look, you know, BE is down from twenty to from thirty to twenty, whatever it is. Therefore, therefore, stuff is cheap." But of course, falling in price doesn't make you cheap. It just makes you conceivably less expensive. Or if earnings have fall, earnings have fallen, it could make you just as expensive as you were before. So we have to be very careful about this idea that a fallen price makes something less expensive because it isn't necessarily. So, however, in the UK, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about price. You know, we can look at the UK now and you can look at a lot of the stocks in your portfolio and say things are actually close to bizarrely cheap. There's an awful lot of value knocking around in the UK market, which doesn't mean that anything is going to necessarily go up in price as a result. But nonetheless, on a valuation basis, a lot of UK equities and smaller companies in particular, perhaps, are increasingly cheap. Absolutely. And I think that is highlighted by the fact that we can continue to see bids coming in for stocks that either we hold or or in the wider market. It's not a stock we hold, but I noticed that Dignity yesterday had a cash offer. We've had bids for a lot of our portfolio holdings over the last year, and they've come from corporates and private equities. So I think that's showing that they are seeing compelling value in public markets. I think the kind of companies that we look for, and at the risk of playing sort of fund management bingo, of course, we're looking for well-managed companies with strong balance sheets and good opportunity. But seriously, these are the kind of companies that are being looked at. So Emis was was bought by a big US corporate, United Health. They have a nice, sustainable repeat revenue model that, that is very attractive to, to an overseas bidder. The, the UK market in particular does look vulnerable for bids. And I think that as you, you raised it before, um, that we might talk about liquidity. I mean, I think that some fund managers, the risk is that they will take a bid that's perhaps too low because they, they're just desperate for liquidity in their portfolio. And this is interesting, isn't it? If if private equity can see the value in the UK market, and so we see these bids coming, not just private equity, but from wherever they come from, bids that come in with, with um, significant 
players in the global market thinking that looks cheap or buy the whole thing. Why can't equity investors, both in the UK and abroad, look at it and say, well, that looks cheap, I'll buy some of the shares? I think that we've seen outflows, um, which have caused some, some forced selling and actually in some cases you where you might find liquidity if you need to find liquidity it will be in some of those slightly more favored names um because you can you can sell them so that might have been one of the issues so yes you've had those equity outflows which have put pressure you've also got a probably quite a sort of short-term view um some some corporates and some private equity players might be able to take a longer term view. That's something that, you know, we, we find pretty frustrating because, you know, short, particularly small cap investing, you know, it's, it's volatile, it is riskier. And the, over the long term, that does give better returns. But people don't like volatility in times like this, particularly now, given the interest rate environment and the risks that they see that that um, investors have been have been very cautious. I think the we have seen outflows. I mean, very steady outflows every year since Brexit. So presumably there is some kind of um, Brexit effect as well here, which is that is the UK seen as an absolutely vital place to invest by an asset allocator? Uh, I think that you should be looking at the value that the, there is there, but. Perhaps it's it's just um, not top of mind for overseas investors. So, what catalyst might that be for change here? I mean, I always think if something is is absolutely cheap, if an area is absolutely cheap, and uh, institutional investors won't buy it or don't buy it for whatever reasons they have, it's a wonderful opportunity for the retail investor because we don't necessarily need a catalyst. We can we can wait a lot longer than an institutional investor, but. That aside, what catalyst might there be for, for things to change, for us to suddenly start seeing outperformance in the UK? Well, I mean, I think actually it is it is incredibly unusual to see bear market drawdowns that you see in the smaller companies area. It's very, very unusual for them to happen more than more than one year in a row. So you've actually got this, you've kind of got a natural feeling that smaller companies which have been oversold are cheaper are often a bit more cyclical if we do start seeing some sort of positive thoughts about inflation peaking and things like that you can see that money would come back into into that sector i into the smaller companies arena in particular and we have had a big drawdown last year presumably if we do see um some sign that equity outflows have peaked then you know some kind of return and some kind of buying will kind of have a double whammy effect it's i suppose a bit like um buying an investment trust at a, a great discount you know you can if you start feeling more confident on the on the underlying holdings and on the region and you start getting you know people can start buying it and reducing that discount you you can have a double whammy effect those two things could could be catalysts and as in further m a will also just start attracting attention to to the uk market and make make it look more attractive you know, it's not to say that there aren't lots of risks out there, but as I say, in the UK, I think those are probably reflected now. 
can we talk about some of the stocks in your portfolio? I mean, we've talked a lot about macro things, but really, you're a, you're a bottom-up investor, aren't you? And uh, we'd lo- we'd love to know about the a few of the stocks that are at the top of your top of your list at the moment. Your personal favourites. I know fund managers aren't supposed to have favourites, but I know you all do. <laughs> yes, um, I mean, I mentioned um, OSB as being one of bigger positions, so that would uh, reflect that it's also one of our one of our favourite stocks. I mean, it's on a very uh, low valuation. In terms of a P multiple, it's got a great yield, and we think that um, they are exceptionally well managed. They've got their profitable cash generative back book. Most of their funding is actually from zero to two year deposits, which cost less than than Sonia, the new LIBOR. And so swap spreads have widened. This means that OSB can be more profitable. So that's that's the name that we really like. Another one is um, Craneware. Now, this is a stock that we own, uh, we've known for a very long time. We own it in our AIMVCT since since IPO and, and in the smaller companies fund since I think early last year. So we it provides hospital management software to around 40% of US hospitals. Now, um, it doesn't have any UK exposure at all. That's a shame. It feels like we could really do with some hospital management software. <laughs> yes, but this is all about the US healthcare spending represents about 17% of GDP and European countries spend around 10 to 12%. So, I mean, whilst arguably we are underspending, I think there's a view that the US healthcare system is is labyrinthine, labyrinthine, labyrinthine in its complexities. How would you? It's a great word. That's a great word. Labyrinthine in its complexities, because you know it's it's all the it's 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 um, the healthcare billing, the pharmacy management, the pricing. There's lots and lots and lots of complexities in U.S. healthcare and dealing with um, insurance companies and things like that. So, what Kramer does is it helps hospitals and other healthcare providers navigate all this and they've developed a, a, a platform to do this and lots of software solutions and what they basically ensure is that medical procedures and dispensing is, is correctly coded for insurance companies and so it involves, it, it helps them avoid over and under charging and improve administrative efficiency really. So um, we think that they are very well set. I mean, there were a lot, much fewer elective operations during the time of the pandemic, and they're coming back on now. Um, and so we we also just see that 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 healthcare is is a very resilient area of the market. So um, Craneware with good cash generation. They are slightly indebted at the moment because of um, an acquisition they did. A couple of years ago, um, but um, they um, they are cash owners, so we expect that debt to reduce rapidly. Um, and also, interestingly, whilst their sales team has to be based out in the US, most of the software development is done here in Scotland. So you know you've got that natural arbitrage of of having a lower costs in developing the software um, in the UK and and selling it overseas in the US. So that's another name I suppose we like. Would you like another one? Oh, yes, we'd always like just one more. Okay, we have. I was thinking. Okay, I, I think you might find Traxis quite interesting. Um, Traxis it provides um, software 
and consultancy to the transport sector, principally the UK train operators and network rail. Now, I think you'd find it, you'd share the delicious irony that I wanted to go to the Traxxas Capital Markets Day, but the only way of getting there was with through three trains and one replacement bus service. And I wouldn't actually be able to get to Leeds and back in a day. So it, I couldn't go to the Capital Markets Day, but luckily a lot of it was available online and I got to watch some of the videos about the new products and services that they have. And it's it's super impressive. So so Traxxas has grown really through through acquisition of, of small software companies that service the rail sector in the UK. And the Rail Tech and Services Division has has really now established to serving quite a lot of the train operating companies and and network rail the software delivers efficiency gains in terms of improved operational performance and timetabling and staff ro rostering they're one of only three companies in the UK that is accredited to do remote condition monitoring technology now this is all the kind of stuff that um, the unions don't really like. They think you need the, the naked eye is better for monitoring um, the condition of switches, for example, and rail lines. But although it does show, has been shown that it's very effective, this remote condition monitoring. And what's been really interesting is the products really do help companies run more efficiently. So the amid the tri strikes and travel disruption, Traxxas has been able to demonstrate that the train op companies that use them can get back up to operational speed after strike days way faster than others and save companies money by more effective timetabling and staff management. So they reduce the dependence on overtime. So that's something that you might have heard about the unions talking about and no one's, you know, they're not going to do their overtime and that's that could be a big threat by the unions, but actually Traxxas can help operating companies really modernise and this is something they desperately need to do. They can help them really modernise and, and, and work more effectively um, and, you know, there is, despite the the tough hand that they were, that the rail um, industry has been dealt through COVID, there is really a long-term commitment to grow rail capacity and that's you know been laid out by whichever flavor of government we have because it is greener than cars or planes and it delivers big productivity um, improvements so we think Traxxas is a really interesting little company which is exceptionally well run uh, another one of those strong balance sheet cash generative and it really delivers critical behind the scenes software for, for all the operating companies and apps and direct com com competitors are few and far between. So it's something we think will continue to consolidate its market position. It's also seeing lots of opportunities in the US where they've made an initial acquisition there called Railcom and the US, US um, ra uh, rail sector is even more complicated than ours. Um, and obviously a lot bigger. So it's something we really like. I believe bigger, I can't believe more complicated. Um, Evaluation, Anna, what, what is it gonna cost us to buy that one? So Traxxas is not looking like a, um, a cheap company at the moment. Um, the the um, price earnings ratio is, is around 27 times. Um, the free cash flow yield, to be fair, for looking at one year is 4.8%. Um, we've seen um, quite a recovery um, in the share price. I think since the since the um, 
uh, this capital markets day has really highlighted the the, the value of the um, of the company. Sales have rebounded really strongly. So we had um, sales growth of around thirty seven percent over the last year. That's because they also have a smaller division, which is not core to them, which does um, events management. So for example, they manage all the people and signposting and stuff around Glastonbury. So there was no Glastonbury the year before, there's Glastonbury this year. So that comes at, that is lower margin, but that's a non-core part of the business. And I think that they will probably, if they get, there might be a management buyout there or something like that, which will release further value. The good thing about tracks is they can make really good accretive acquisitions. So yes, it is it is not a cheap company on any metric. We feel that it's exceptionally well underpinned and that the risks of downgrades are, are very, it's very low. Um, Anna, I think we'll have to end it there. That's fascinating. And uh, as I say, anything that makes our, our rail sector work better would be much appreciated. Anything that made our NHS work better would also be much appreciated. Um, and uh, some of those stocks are fascinating. Anna, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. And please, of course, if you like our show, which I do hope you do, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Somersadi. Special thanks to Anna McDonald and to John Stefik. And of course, this is your reminder, which you will get every week to sign up to John's newsletter, Money Distilled. It's extremely good. And the link is in the show notes. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.